0: This morning's Bible reading comes from Philippians, chapter 4, verse 4 to 9. It's in your leaflets and on the screen and in your Bibles. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you.
1: Well, thank you, Hannah. Good morning. For those who uh, don't know me, my name's Ellis Saxon. I'm one of the congregation here. I normally attend nine o'clock, and uh, every now and again Cameron invites me to preach, which is a real privilege. I'm just wondering about his motives this morning because it's the first week back as two uh, services, two sermons, and he invites me to preach. So uh, We we continue this morning with another sermon from the series, A Life Worth Living, and from today's reading we hear Paul make a number of calls to the Philippians, which which are just as applicable to us living 2,000 years later. Firstly, a call to rejoice, then a call for our gentleness to be evident to all, followed by a call not to be anxious about anything, and although not quite as clear as the first three, a call to be holy. But before we touch on those and investigate those, please let me pray. Heavenly Father, we call on you to reveal yourself to us even more this morning through your word. Let us clearly see what your will is for us, and help us not only to hear but to heed your teaching, your advice, so that our lives might become more like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we give you thanks and praise for changing our lives and enabling us to live in an ongoing relationship with you. Amen. Now Paul begins in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Now, come on, Paul, be serious. You've got to be kidding, right? It's been a bad week. I've only got half my deadlines done at work. My car broke down on the freeway. One of the children have been ill. The other one fell out of a tree and broke their arm. The neighbour's dog's barked all night. I've got a headache. I haven't had breakfast. And you're saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Fair go. You can't be serious. You've got to be kidding. That's the last thing I feel like doing. Now, who here has ever read these words, heard these words, and had similar sentiments to me? I'm sure some of you have. Or have you asked yourself the question, what have I got to rejoice about? It's well and good for Paul. He doesn't know my life. But Paul continues, I'll say it again, rejoice. Hmm. Perhaps he is serious. But how can we rejoice in the Lord under conditions that perhaps make us feel as though our world is collapsing in on us? Well, that's one of the questions we'll investigate this morning. Now, Paul is writing to the Philippian church, which he had founded on his second missionary journey. And they had a number of problems. There were those Cameron spoke of a couple of weeks ago, Christians with a Jewish flavour, those who couldn't let go of Judaism and its law. And Paul had warned the Philippians in three two, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And in verse 18, for those who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. There was selfishness within the church and trouble between two of the women, Euodia and Syntesee. And of course, they had the great concern that their their brother in Christ, their mentor, mentor Paul, was now imprisoned. And that's where Paul's writing from. Now, he could have been swallowed up in self-pity and concern for himself, but his concern is for them. He's pointing out that neither his difficult circumstances nor the frightening dangers faced by the Philippians themselves can be allowed to eclipse Christian joy as the mark of faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul speaks of all the sufferings he has gone through more than most. And yet, this very same Paul is the one calling them to rejoice. He, if anyone, had the supreme qualification to issue the call to rejoice. Now, he's not speaking about superficial happiness that manifests itself when all goes well. No, he's speaking of a rejoicing that can be had, not on changing circumstances, but on the one who does not change, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for who he is and what he's done for us. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says, and if anticipating objections like my own, he repeats the command... I'll say it again, rejoice. Paul in his own dire circumstances said earlier in 118 of his letter regarding Christ being preached, because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I'll continue to rejoice. He practices what he preaches. He's been a prime example of this this virtue since he first preached the gospel to them. He doesn't say, hang in there, brothers and sisters, like I'm doing. Our circumstances are tough at the moment, but they'll come to an end one day. No, he almost shouts it out. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say, rejoice in the Lord. So how can Paul be so enthusiastic and rejoice in his current dilemma when most would expect him to do the opposite? the overwhelming significance of Paul's Damascus Road experience where he came face-to-face with Jesus the Messiah changed his entire worldview, turned his life around 180 degrees. And that's reflected throughout his whole letter to the Philippians. He was changed from a man who persecuted Christians to one who was commissioned to take the good news of the gospel to to the Gentiles. And Paul's attitude Now is reflected in his words in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And we heard a fortnight ago that Paul, next to knowing Jesus Christ and having a faith in him, considered all other things garbage, dung. Paul was motivated by his experience of the risen Christ. As he saw in his own life, what might be possible for those who were willing to commit their time and talents, their lives, to the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Well, what about us? Do we see Paul as some superior, saintly, holy person, capable of rejoicing in the Lord in all circumstances, whereas we are not? Heaven forbid. When we remember that we've been declared righteous by a righteousness that comes from God, through faith in Jesus Christ, when we remember that we're children of the living God, new creations in Christ, sins forgiven, sins that we were once dead in, but now made alive in Christ, when we remember we were once in darkness, but now in light, sealed by the Holy Spirit with the promise of eternal life, how can we not rejoice in the Lord? How can we not be filled with joy? And it's reassuring to know that our circumstances, no matter how bad, don't affect these things. Do not touch them. Hallelujah. David says in Psalm 40, verses 2 to 3 He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God David is doing exactly what we should be doing in the Lord, reflecting on what he has done for us what was our slimy pit how did he lift us out well of course he immersed himself in it to get us out praise be to God I know some of us here today suffer through a variety of negative situations, relationships, struggles, concerns, and it's difficult not to be affected by them. But listen to the comforting words of Acts 14.22. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And Don Carson, the theological writer, says these words on the subject. The believer who practices rejoicing in the Lord increasingly discovers balm in the midst of heartache, rest in the midst of of exhausting tension, love in the midst of loneliness, and the presence of God in control of excruciating circumstances. Such a believer never gives up the Christian walk. When we consider all that God has done for us in Christ... It's embarrassing but understandable that Paul needs to remind most of us, if not all of us, to rejoice in those things all of the time. Now, Paul makes clear the grounds of his rejoicing, rejoicing in the Lord. No mention of style. We're not necessarily rejoicing in the Lord if we're boisterous and loud, uninhibited in a large hall, singing and swinging. Mind you, sometimes that might be completely appropriate. But our joy in the Lord may also be expressed in times of solemn silence, in tears of gratitude, or in sheer delight in times of prayer, perhaps in the singing of hymns, Christian music, preaching the gospel to oneself. Paul's emphasis is on the ground of our rejoicing, not on our circumstances. Because if that was the case, when they change for the worse, we'd become miserable. Our joy must be in the relationship we have with the living God and with Christ. The relationship which is the great promise God gives in Jeremiah thirty two, thirty eight They will be my people and I will be their God. Hallelujah. Our delight, our joy must be in the Lord. That is what enables us to rise above our circumstances. And when are we to rejoice? Always. How is this possible? Well, the ground of our rejoicing is changeless. The Lord does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So let us resolve to rejoice in the Lord always. Amen. Paul continues his letter in verse 5. Let your gentleness be seen to be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now what does Paul mean by gentleness? Well, firstly, it mustn't be confused with being a wimp, having the personality of a wet dishcloth, for example. Jesus was never referred to as gentle Jesus in Scripture. The only place I could find a reference to... uh, to uh, gentleness was in Charles Wesley's Great Hymn where he refers to Jesus as gentle Jesus, meek and mild. By referring to gentleness, I found an article by L.H. Marshall which gives a full description of its meaning as fair-mindedness. The attitude of a person who is charitable towards people's faults and merciful in their judgment of their failings because they take their whole situation into their reckoning. Perhaps the best English equivalent is graciousness, a spirit of willingness to yield under trial, which will show itself in a refusal to retaliate when attacked. But let no one mistake gentleness for any sign of weakness in a Christian. Paul's appeal for gentleness is defined by the following words, to all. It implies that Paul has the church's relationship with the outside world in mind, rather than Christian fellowship itself. Genuine Christian joy is not inward-looking. It's not by concentrating on ourselves, our needs for happiness, but on the needs of others that we, t- that we learn to rejoice So Paul's call to the Philippians to look out, not for their own interests, but for the interests of others, to regard others as more important, to display the selflessness of Christ. It ties in with our previous verse, if you think of it, as the the outshining of our joy in the Lord. It may appear difficult, but it's made possible by God's grace and the effect that it's had on our lives. Let our attitude be the same as that of Christ. Let us resolve to be known for our gentleness. Now, Paul continues, the Lord is near. Now, scholars believe that this could have one of two meanings. Firstly, that he's coming back soon. So in light of his impending return, there is more than a little incentive to be gentle and selfless. Or secondly, and more likely, the Lord is near personally. He's not far off. And if that is the case, how can we possibly give ourselves over to self-promotion, parading our virtues, being puffed up, proud? We need to let our gentleness be evident to all. Paul continues, do not be anxious about anything. Now, come on, Paul, you're doing it to me again. I now get the rejoice in the Lord always thing, but be anxious about nothing. Have you looked around the world in the last 24 hours, Paul? The threat of terrorism. We saw Jakarta this week. We saw Turkey. And what about the climate? That seems to have gone crazy, like floods in England, droughts elsewhere, record temperatures in Adelaide. Closer to home, I've had trouble meeting my mortgage payments. I may lose my job next week. One of the children have been ill. And you say, don't be anxious about anything. How can you say that? Come on, get real. What's that? Read on, you say. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So anxiety replaced by the peace of God. Well, that makes sense. But how does that work? Now, who here has never been anxious? I think most of us. I had one dear little girl put her hand up this morning. God bless her. She's only about three years old. <laughs> Firstly, this passage doesn't deny the existence of anxieties. It tells us what to do with them. It tells us how to overcome them. It doesn't say that if we have the right character and personality that we can rise above our circumstances. What it tells us is where we can find strength and grace to help us in times of need. It gives us an alternative. It reminds us that God is capable, that He can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, quoting Ephesians three twenty. We can have confidence in Him. But do we do that? Or do we become so concerned about our anxieties that God is shunted to one side, even forgotten? Paul's calling on us not to act in that way, but to draw intimately close to God in prayer, bringing everything before Him that troubles us, worries us, from the most minute thing to what might seem like an immovable mountain. Peter in 1 Peter 5 7 says these words, Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. What wonderful words of advice. If you're feeling anxious and you read those words, you can almost feel the anxiety draining from you. Praise God. Paul tells us to present our request to God by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. He's encouraging us to go on the offensive, to offer our Heavenly Father thanksgiving, even in our times of extreme sorrow and distress the reality of God's goodness and mercy will save us from being over-concerned with our immediate problems. from From forgetting God's gracious dealings with us in the past and disregarding those who are less fortunate than us. It ties in with Paul's call to rejoice in the Lord always. Any one of us can pray and praise when things are going well. But what about when the chips are down? Let us resolve not to be anxious about anything, but learn instead to pray. And what's the result of our prayers? Paul continues, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Wow, that is fantastic. What a wonderful promise. It's something we can be excited about. That peace that transcends our intellectual process, that surpasses all all of our dreams, and that is beyond our range of comprehension. Paul is not saying all our prayers will be answered at once. Then and there. God answers our prayers as best for us. He may even say no. No. But he is saying that as a result of prayer, the opposite to anxiety, that is, that is its relief, is the peace that only God gives. The Lord's words, do not be anxious for anything, are grounded in the assurance that God knows our every need. And if you need to know more about that, if you're taking notes, you might like to jot down Luke 2.22 onwards and Matthew onwards. As we trust in God, his peace stabilises us, guards us and fills us with joy. He sets our feet upon a rock just as he did David's. Joy and inward peace are qualities that very much belong together. So again, let us rejoice in the Lord. Now Paul begins his final exhortations in verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, <clears throat> whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Paul lists represents distinctly, distinctly Christian values, virtues. Although we cannot deny that many of non-Christians exemplify such virtues in their lives. So what is Paul saying? To focus our hearts and minds on what is best. If we think holy thoughts, they'll be reflected in the way we live our lives. Similarly, if we think garbage, we will be garbage. We need to train ourselves to be looking for good things, justice, kindness, Generosities of spirit. You could probably think of a whole host of things. And out of those, we need to mine every situation for the positive, the good and the worthy. There's a lot of junk out there. And it's easy to think and talk about the mundane, the boring and the useless. From God's perspective, the real measure of an an individual lies in what we think not in what we own, how we use our gifts or the godly tasks we perform. And Paul knows that to replace any rubbish in our thoughts, we need an entirely different way of thinking. A way that can be achieved by spending time with God, thoughtful time, meditative time in his word. Romans 12.2 says, says this, Do not conform, conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, it's so easy to be consumed in other things, to be slack, lazy, drift from reading God's word. But as Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's wonderful advice. And let's be encouraged to renew our minds, to think and meditate on God's word. Hide it in our hearts so that we will not sin. God's word and God himself are the key to the things we've looked at this morning. Rejoicing, gentleness, not being anxious. And as we focus more and more on God and his character, So we celebrate the changes they bring to us. Now Paul concludes, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Now when I first read this years ago, I thought, gee Paul, you've got a pretty high opinion of yourself. But then I discovered that before the composition of the New Testament, before it was written down, the standard of Christian belief and behaviour was embodied in the, the example and the teaching of the apostles and others in whose life the authority and ethical practice of the Lord was to be found. And before they became scripture, they were learned, received, heard and seen. That's why Paul places so much emphasis on these words. They cover the whole range of his behaviour. And as Cameron pointed out two weeks ago, Paul's external actions were blameless. He had every right to call on them to put those things into practice. Paul is modelling himself on the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and he's calling on us to do the same as if he's passing it down the line. He wasn't teaching them doctrine just for the sake of head knowledge. He's calling on them to live lives modelled on the patterns of apostolic examples and teaching that they had seen and heard. Paul had said just in the verse before in 3.17, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. We would well do to heed Paul's call and emulate worthy, righteous Christian leaders whom we know. And if we put these things in the practice, living holy, obedient lives, modelled ultimately on Christ himself, not only will the peace of God be with us, as mentioned in verse 7, but the God of peace will be with us. What an extraordinary promise. What a wonderful promise. There's no higher blessing from God. Praise his name forever. Amen. So in conclusion, as I mentioned previously, who God is and what he's done ties together all Paul's calls. Those calls, those commands we've heard from him today. God and his past and present actions are the principles on which the Christian life is lived. So as we go forth today from this place, let us go with a fresh zeal to be imitators of Christ, to put in to practice all we have heard from him this morning. And I'll let Paul have the final say from Ephesians 4.1, where he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Amen.